calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello and welcome to the Take 15 podcast. I'm Lauren Foster, and this is the show where we bring you short conversations with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. In this week's episode, we explore modern monetary theory with Stephanie Kelton, Professor of Economics and Public Policy at Stony Brook University. Professor Kelton's forthcoming book is, But How Will We Pay For It? Modern Monetary Theory and the Deficit Myth. She sat down with my colleague Richard Fernand to talk about how to break free of the myths and misunderstandings about money and the role of taxes, debt, and deficits that have hamstrung policymakers around the world. I hope you enjoy their conversation. Stephanie Kelton, welcome. Thank you. So, can you outline for our members the basic tenets of MMT? Well, sort of the key central idea, I guess, is that governments that have control of their own sovereign currency, and by that I mean a currency that they issue, uh, a currency that they don't promise to convert into anything else at a fixed price, so they're not promising to convert it into gold or into another country's currency, so we call it a non-convertible fiat currency. If you are the issuer of your own unique currency, non-convertible, then certain things apply to you. One is um, that you can never run out of it, right? As the issuer of the currency, there can never be a time where you've got payments coming due and you simply can't afford to make them, right? Where would I get the money? I can't afford that. That question is off the table. A question about how are you going to pay for it? You never have to ask that question of a sovereign currency issuer. They can always afford to spend in their own currency on whatever People are willing to produce and sell in order to get that currency. Government is not dependent on tax revenue. It doesn't have to borrow in order to spend. It can always set the interest rate on any borrowing it chooses to do. And it can never become insolvent or go broke or become like Greece or something like that. So it doesn't have to arrange its finances the way a household would. Okay, so if we think about monetary sovereigns, uh, uh, where, um where does central bank independence fit into that story or apparent central bank independence? Well, when we talk about central bank independence, uh, what we usually really mean is that the government doesn't interfere with the central bank's policy decisions when it comes to setting interest rates. And there is no need to interfere. Uh, MMT doesn't say we must interfere with central bank independence and um, subsume the central bank under the treasury or make them you know, set interest rates in a certain way. So in that respect, there, there is no interference. There is no implication for central bank independence. But what I think people often miss when they talk about central bank independence is that the central bank is, in our case, the Fed, uh, is independent from the government, but is not independent of the government. In other words, the central bank is the government's fiscal agent. 
So the Fed will clear any payment that is authorized by Congress. It is not independent in the sense that it can say, I will not allow you to spend on the things that you've approved in Congress. It doesn't have that kind of independence. Okay, okay. So, um, taxation. In a traditional framework for analyzing the economy, taxation is a mechanism by which a government can get money in for it to then spend. How does NMT think about taxation? Well, we would think of it along those lines if we were looking at an individual state like California or Illinois, or if we were looking at a municipality, Detroit, um, those, those, that would apply, right? Those states, municipalities, they are dependent on tax revenue in order to remain operational. They are currency users. So they really do have to get the money from somewhere in order to be able to spend the money. The difference is at the federal level. So the federal government of the United States is not like an individual state or a municipality. The federal government is the issuer of the currency. The US dollar comes from the US government and it can't come from anywhere else, okay? So in that respect, the federal government is not dependent upon revenues in order to re remain operational. It can spend first and then decide how much of that spending to subtract away from people by taxing it back out of their hands, but there's no imperative for government at the federal level for the issuer to collect its money back in order to be able to spend. Which sounds like a great situation for the federal government to be in. Sure. What, what's the constraint upon it? There are two. Uh, one, it's political, okay? And the other is it's the real economy, the real resource capacity of our economy to safely handle any new spending that the government decides it wants to pursue. So right now the federal budget in the United States is four and a half trillion. Okay, that's a lot of money, but we don't have an inflation problem. The government can spend four and a half trillion. It taxes about three and a half trillion back out of the economy. And that means it's running a deficit of about a trillion dollars at the moment. So that trillion dollar deficit is the government's way of making a deposit to the US economy. It's putting a trillion dollars in there. Now, if that was too much, it would show up in the form of inflation, but we don't have an inflation problem. In fact, the US hasn't, the Federal Reserve hasn't been able to hit its own 2% inflation target and keep inflation at that level. So uh, if anything, our economy could handle more spending. So the question is, you know, what are the limits? Well, if Congress decided to sit down next year and write a $6 trillion budget instead of a $4.5 trillion budget, we would end up spending an extra trillion and a half next year. The question is, can the U.S. economy absorb that additional spending safely? In other words, if there is higher demand in the U.S. economy, can our businesses meet that higher demand with more supply or have they already hit their capacity constraints? They can't produce more. They're already at the limit. And then the only possible outcome is that prices go up. So is there a, a policy implication of what would the deficit spending could go on in relation to capacity? Well, look, I mean, these people are elected to represent the rest of us, right? We have 435 people in the House and 100 in the Senate. And at least in theory, they are there to write a budget that prioritizes the use of resources that best reflect the will of the people, the wishes, right? How do we want healthcare? Do we want more education? How do we want infrastructure? Um, 
but there's no way in real time to hold them accountable. If they want to write a $6 trillion budget and put most of the new resources into defense, for example, that might not reflect the priorities of the majority of the American people, but it wouldn't stop them from doing it. The way that we have an opportunity for accountability is at the ballot box in the next election cycle. If we don't like the way that our elected officials are using the power of the public purse, then we have an opportunity to change leadership. So thinking about the analytical framework versus, if you like, policy implications, um, you're very clear in saying that MMT is an analytical framework rather than a, a, a policy framework as such. Are there any governments around the world that are um, expressly using it as an analytical framework to guide their policy decisions? Um, I'm not sure that there are governments writ large, but there are certainly elected members of government who are using it uh, to inform their thinking. I mean, you know, a couple of years ago, maybe two and a half years ago, a number of um, elected officials in Japan, uh, members of the Japanese government, formed their own study group to begin studying MMT just among themselves. And then after a period of time, they started openly invoking MMT on the floor of the diet right, in saying we should have more ambitious use of fiscal policy to increase pensions for seniors or to do this. And we can do this because MMT tells us that it's about inflation, it's not about whether we're adding to the deficit. And so there are definitely people you know, in Japan, in the US, um, elected officials, people running for office who are um, looking at MMT and thinking about, you know, how would I defend a policy proposal that calls for increased spending in a way that's consistent, not with current budget thinking, but with MMT. And are they, um, are they utilizing the, the, the expertise of, of you and your, your fellow all, all MMT the time. Yeah, all the time. Okay. Yeah, I mean, not, I, I do a lot of it, but increasingly other MMT economists are you know, doing one-on-one -on -one meetings and phone calls and training sessions. And we are talking to both elected officials and um, people who are running for the Senate, for the US House, and they wanna come to us and, and reorient their thinking. So I think it's encouraging. So do you and the, the other, well, it's about six, I believe. No, it's much more. more so when actually. the project started, uh -huh. there were about half a dozen contributing the early scholarship, the early literature. But then over time, um, it's grown quite a lot. And do you coordinate? Do you feel yourself as 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 a group somehow, or, or even a movement? A little. Well, I don't think a movement, but as scholars, we certainly. You know, I reached out to some of the European MMT academics in putting together the slides for this talk because I said, you know. I need something that's updated that shows Spain's financial balance or the German and, you know, because they're doing work in the same analytical framework, they just sent me the data I needed and very helpful. So yeah, we collaborate. And it seems that there's a lot of, um, a lot of airtime and coverage being given to your ideas now. So it seems to be uh, resonant, but this is an idea which has been around for a long time, a new reference to work of, of other academics stretching back 25 years and more. Why do you think it's resonant now? I think a number of reasons. Um, one is that increasingly people are beginning to come to terms with the fact that 
you know, there will eventually be a downturn, a global recession, uh, individual countries falling back into recession, that monetary policy has probably exhausted uh, its usefulness, that there's little, uh, if anything, that central banks can do when economies weaken um, in the years ahead, that fiscal policy is going to have to play a greater role, and that in order to get where we need to get in terms of getting a, the right policy response from, from the fiscal side, that we have to change our thinking because we spent the last decade you know, um, worrying about budget deficits and the national debt and all of that. And if, if you stay locked in that narrative, then the only conclusion is monetary policy can't do anything and fiscal policy can't do anything. Mm -hmm. So when the next downturn comes, we're just gonna have to wait it out with mm -hmm. no policy response. So I think that's one thing. Um, I think that the Trump tax cuts in our case, adding close to $2 trillion to deficits at a time when many thought that it would have disastrous consequences, that interest rates would go up, that growth would go down, that crowding out, all those usual stories, none of it happened. So people are beginning to change the way they're thinking because mm -hmm. the models that have informed our thinking about deficits and the relationship to interest rates and crowding, all of those things keep not happening. Japan, the Japanese experience, I think, is another thing that if you can have 240% debt to GDP ratio, if the BOJ can buy up half of all of the outstanding government bonds and you know the monetary base and no inflation, if all of those things keep happening and they don't, they're not consistent with what the models say, then we need new models, we need new theories. So turning to um, deficits, and, and let's think about this in, a, if you like, a technical sense, in terms of accounting identity. Can you explain to our members how the accounting identity works, let's say for the US as, as an example, and the impact that deficits from a, a government perspective and also a trade service or deficit will have on the private sector? I, ca I can. Um, I think the easiest way to start is with what I would call a two-bucket model, okay. okay, or a two-sector or a two-bucket model. So if we just have two buckets, we think of the government as one bucket and the non-government as the other bucket. That's all there can be, government or everything but government. Okay. So if the government runs a deficit, spends $10 and only taxes back $9, then we label that a deficit. We say the government has run a budget deficit. And a lot of people will say, shame on that government for doing that fiscally irresponsible thing. You should not be running deficits. But what we forget is that if the government puts 10 in and only takes nine back out, somebody got one, okay? So the government deficit is the non-government surplus to the penny. So if one bucket shows a minus one, the other bucket shows a plus one. And their surplus came from that thing that we call such irresponsible deficit spending. Okay, it's adding, it's making a financial contribution to some other part of the economy. Now we could go from the two bucket model to a three bucket model. We take the non-government bucket and split it into two. So the non-government bucket includes the domestic private sector, all the households, all the businesses in the domestic economy, plus the rest of the world. So now we got three buckets to worry about. It's like juggling, right? I have three buckets. So, but the, the mathematics still apply. Everybody can't have a surplus. It's mm -hmm. impossible. One bucket's surplus is the result of some other bucket's deficit. 
every bucket can't have a deficit. If one bucket has a deficit, somebody else, has, right? So mm -hmm. what we're going to end up with, unless we get zero in all three buckets, what we're going to end up with are some pluses and minuses. And we got three buckets. So we have to ask the question, if somebody's going to have a minus sign, who should that be, right? At least one bucket is going to say minus. What we know is that it doesn't usually work out very well if it's the private sector that is in deficit. Because the private sector, the households and businesses, they're users of currency, not the issuer of the currency. The issuer of the currency is very special. Its bucket is very different. It can issue the currency from its own bucket um, without ever running out of the currency, right? A household, a business has to earn the currency in order to be able to spend it. And most of the time they want to actually save. They want to net save, so they want to accumulate. The only way that we allow the private sector bucket to be in surplus is for one of the other two buckets to feed that bucket. Mm -hmm. So we can do that in one of two ways. The government can run a deficit, which pours, let's say, dollars or euro into the private sector bucket, or the rest of the world can pour currency into the private bucket. And you can achieve that if you're a country and you're running trade surpluses then your economy is being fed by dollars or euro coming in from the outside. And that's one way to do it. So you, you can become very dependent on external demand, right? The rest of the world has to have a, a large appetite for the things that you produce. And as long as that is true, it can support jobs and incomes in your domestic private sector. Or the government deficit can help to support jobs and income in your private sector. But one of those two buckets, or both, need to be you know, supporting private sector activity. Thank you. That's very clear. So one last question for you. Um, is there a, a, a critique that's often leveled at MMT that you think is particularly unfair or, or, or bothersome? Yeah, there are. There, I'll tell you the big one. There probably is more than one, but the biggest one is uh, if somebody says MMT says um, is the school of thought or the type of economics that says deficits don't matter. Ooh, that one gets me because uh, I just explained to you how important deficits are. They matter. They just don't matter the way we've been taught to believe. Right? The way we've been taught to believe is that government deficits are evidence of irresponsible behavior, that there's something that we should strive to eliminate. And I'm saying the government deficit is an important source of support for the domestic private sector. It can support income and jobs. Deficits can be too big, and evidence of a deficit that's too big is inflation. But deficits can also be too small, and evidence of a deficit that's too small is uh, an economy that underperforms. Fantastic. That's a, a great insight. I think if our members remember one thing, that deficits can be too small, that's a great takeaway. Great. Thanks, Thanks so for much. Me. Thank you for your time, Stephanie. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting or legal advice, please consult a professional. I am Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.